Today is day two of our autumn seven-day session, and it's the 7th of May 2018. And we're going to um, pick up where we left off. Um, we were looking at um, Hongzhi's friend, Da Hui, a great um, championer of, of koan practice, um, his criticisms of um, silent illumination, which in Chinese is, is Mo Jiao. So Da Hui um, charged that the advocates of uh, silent illumination just teach people to stop and rest and play dead. They sit wordlessly with eyes shut beneath the black mountain and don't seek subtle, wondrous enlightenment. And then uh, Leighton comments on this. He says, to be sure, the misapplication and misunderstanding of silent illumination meditation sometimes has led to self-satisfied, tranquilized, uninsightful and unresponsive practitioners. Conversely, highly systematized koan practice, predominantly a feature of the Rinzai tradition, sometimes has the tendency to encourage the student to pass through successive koans in a formalized program of accomplishment rather than becoming the story and its teaching. In both cases, the role of a teacher is to correct such deviations and to keep the practice balanced. Um, the koan, the, uh, it's, it's, this is a fair accusation of um, koan practice, that sometimes people get into this attitude of um, um, passing koans and sort of putting notches on their belt. And, and it can breed a, a kind of arrogance where the, the student thinks he or she is advanced um, because there's this uh, sort of illusion of advancing through the koans. So any practice can be, can be distorted and twisted and that's the point here made about, about the role of the teacher keeping the practice balanced, seeing when the student is becoming imbalanced and, and pointing that out. The criticism here he makes of the, of the misusers of silent illumination, um, that, um, that they just teach people to stop and rest and play dead. Um, because of the um, emphasis at the beginning of, of silent illumination on, on calmness, um, one can get to a, a state that is, is very quiet and very comfortable, but not, not really um, going anywhere or not where really um, with this, this sharp element of awareness. So that's, it's important that that is there too. And that can contrast that certainly people, sometimes people um, 
will will be in a very maybe silent illumination or shikantaza might seem very attractive when they're in an acute a place of acute discomfort um, with koan practice this this um, is is a part of koan practice that the discomfort of not knowing the the discomfort of of um, uh, seeking seeking to understand the koan and um, having not yet done so and it, that's in a sense that's part of the koan's power because the the discomfort can so can become so acute that eventually you're you're pushed to leap beyond your ego identity. That's how it works. Um, shikantaza, on the other hand, silent illumination, is more like a um, gradual water dripping on rock uh, approach, the um, wearing away of of um, ego identity. Dahue claims that silent illumination produces addiction to calmness by emphasizing concentration at the expense of insight. However, the teaching of Hungjo himself, as presented in the practice instructions, balances these two qualities. And in his important poem, Guidepost of Silent Illumination, Hongzhu clearly stresses the indispensability and interdependence of both serenity or calm and illumination or insight. These are uh, the shamatha and vipassana, these um, uh, terms that are used in, in uh, classical Buddhism for this kind of um, meditation. If illumination neglects, and this is a quote, of Hongzhu, if illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears. If serenity neglects illumina illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. And this ver this word um, murkiness here is um, uh, very apt. Um, we can we can develop. Um, a certain amount of calm in our practice um, that doesn't actually uh, purify us of our defilements. Um, th they still remain there, it's just that they're at bay because of our uh, power of our concentration. It's like, um, it's like a glass of, of muddy water. We can, if we can leave that alone, then the, the the sediments will just sink into the bottom of the of the glass, and so the water will appear to be clear, but um, something disturbs that glass of water, and they're stirred up again. The murkiness arises, and we can experience this in our own lives, where perhaps we we get into a concentrated um, place. It could be in a session. It could be. Um, at home or going going on a solar retreat or something and then we come back to our everyday lives and something happen happens and we get all stirred up and anger arises or 
or um, fear, and then we realize that we haven't really mastered these things. We've just learned to um, allow them to to um, retreat, so to speak. So this is what he's talking about when he says, if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. Illumination um, is what really transforms our defilements. Uh, when we see, when we really see into them, then they lose, they lose their power over us. So true, true silent illumination has these two sides, silence and illumination. Silence refers to a non-discursive um, approach and the illumination is the, is the, the looking, uh, alertly, clearly, the vigilance to, to become uh, aware of what is going on in the mind. What is arising, having a certain life, and in um, falling away. Hongzhou's teaching, though perhaps misapplied by some of his followers, encourages active functioning appropriate to the everyday phenomenal world. The ultimate purpose of spiritual practice is to realize both wisdom's illuminating insight and its appropriate functioning in the ordinary world of beings. Bodhisattvic responsiveness and responsibility. Hongzhou depicts this process of meditative realization. And this is a quote. The ancestral master's nostrils and patch-robe monk's life pulse consists of holding firmly and then releasing an activity so that we all discover our own freedom. So it is said that false thinking is stopped and stillness necessarily arises. Stillness arises and a wisdom appears. Wisdom arises and stillness necessarily disappears in active functioning. Clear and distinct this is the only authentic view. So he's putting here um, different sort of phases of our, our practice experience. So the first one, he says, consists of, of holding firmly. And this is where we, we, we see that, that um, we need to work on our minds and we engage in the discipline of um, still practice, seated practice, sazazen. So then through this process, we can, we can um, uh, kind of extricate ourselves from our fa false thinking. We can start to see it. And of course, as soon as it's seen, it's no longer false in the same way it is as it is when we're caught up in it. So stilling the mind, then um, concentration, we become concentrated. And when we become concentrated, that, that allows for 
um, insight to to happen because the mind is now an instrument that can really uh, look into itself so then wisdom appears and then he says wisdom arises and stillness necessarily disappears once wisdom has arisen then we can return to the world and um, respond appropriately we can engage in, in what is called skillful means active functioning in the world so um, you could say um, that we, we, we take up practice in order to um, return to the world, to engage. We, we retreat in order to advance. And it's not, um, it's not like one is, is right and the other was wrong. It's much more to do with the timing, what we need at a particular time and place. For Hongzhou, the whole purpose of practice is to graciously share yourself with the hundred grass tips in the busy marketplace. And the hundred grass tips is, is a, one of the ways that the Chinese would, would talk about um, the many beings, all the forms of existence. So that's the purpose, ultimately, is to be is to be able to do this, to graciously share ourselves, to, um, or as it says in the ox herding pictures, um, to enter the marketplace with helping hands. Hongzhi frequently exhorts his listeners to study and to embody the teaching more thoroughly and penetratingly and to persist in going beyond their current realization. And again and he, again, he urges us to actualize the state of total awareness. And again here um, we see the role of the teacher. Uh, teachers really, in, in, in many ways, like, like a coach whose, whose job it is to, to um, help the students do their best and really um, continue to um, develop, not be satisfied with, with um, small um, understanding. like to go to our first passage now um, this is this is getting now getting into the actual um, text um, cultivating the empty field and um, practice instructions and before we look at our first passage it's just a little bit a little introduction by the the monk who 
who gathered the teachings together. So first it says, Dharma words of monk Hongzhi Jingjue of Mount Tiantung in Ming province, compiled and with a preface by monk Pu Chong. And there's a footnote that says that his, he was a disciple of Hongzhi, obviously, and his name means universal respect. And um, there's no other reference to him anywhere um, besides in this, in this text itself. Hongzhi made vast and empty the bright mirror and saw through it and reflected without neglect. He manifested the mysterious pivot of subtle change, then trusted his fortune and certainly found the core. Only one who had the true eye and deep flowing eloquence could have mastered this. My teacher lived below Taipai Peak, that's one of the peaks on the Mount um, Tiantong that we've been talking about. Dragons and elephants tromped around. Um, dragons and elephants are a way of talking about enlightened beings. Uh, the hammer and chisel of the teaching chipped away. The meaning of his, of his words spread widely but still conveyed the essence. Sometimes scholars and lay people who trusted the way asked for his directions. Sometimes mendicant monks requested his instructions. They spread out paper and wrote down his responses. And this is apparently what the monk used to create this collection, people's notes. He spoke up and answered the questions, producing appropriate Dharma talks. I have selected a few of these and arranged them in order. Ah, the emptiness of the great blue sky, the flowing of the vast ocean. I have not yet attained these utmost depths so please excuse my attempt to record his talks. I must await the ones who mysteriously accord with spiritual awakening to pound out the rhythm of his words and appreciate their tones. So he's uh, humbly um, uh, making apologies for his own uh, level of, of um, understanding in, in offering these talks. The first one we're going to look at is entitled The Bright Boundless Field. And in this section, um, the titles uh, have been added by um, our translator, um, Tygen Daniel Layton. So I'm going to read the, the whole passage and then, and then um, look into it. The Bright Boundless Field The field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. Utter emptiness has no image. Upright independence does not rely on anything. Just expand and illuminate the original truth unconcerned by external conditions. Accordingly, we are told to realize that not a single thing exists. 
In this field, birth and death do not appear. The deep source, transparent down to the bottom, can radiantly, sh radiantly shine and can respond unencumbered to each speck of dust without becoming its partner. The subtlety of seeing and hearing transcends mere colours and sounds. The whole affair functions without leaving traces and mirrors without obscurations. Very naturally, mind and dharmas emerge and harmonize. The ancients said that non-mind embodies and fulfills the way of non-mind. Embodying and fulfilling the way of non-mind, finally you can rest. Proceeding, you are able to guide the assembly. With thoughts clear, sitting silently, wander into the center of the circle of wonder. This is how you must penetrate and study. Okay, so you, you can see that his, his style is, is, uh, is very poetic. And so um, it's, we've got to um, look carefully into each uh, sentence of this, really, and uh, see what he's he's pointing to. So, what is this bright, boundless field that he's talking about? He says, the feel of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. What is it that exists from the very beginning, the beginningless beginning? Before there was time and space. Before anything had arisen. Sometimes, sometimes this question is, is, um, is formulated as, what was your face before your parents gave birth to you? So we can take it at a personal level or on a, on a more cosmic level. Can um, in, in this case, it's it's a, it's a being formulated at this at this vast level. The field that existed before there was anything, and this is something that is is. Um, explored and understood now to some degree um, in physics. And then there's, uh, f physicists have given a name to this, this unnameable reality. And they call it um, the quantum vacuum. I just want to read a little bit from um, 
a book called The Hidden Heart of the Convers Cosmos by Brian Swim. I read a little bit from this at a Taisho recently, and um, I think it can be very helpful to to connect these these ancient images to um, the discoveries of physics, discoveries which we haven't really um, incorporated into our world view. We still, we still, most of us ha have a pretty Newtonian view of of um, our universe. But this this is is not just a, a metaphor in Hongzhi. He's he's pointing to something that uh, exists. In as much as we can say that that nothingness exists. Swim writes, as I have said earlier, one of the principal difficulties in understanding the new story, this new story of the universe and the quantum vacuum, is the Newtonian shape of our minds. This is nowhere more true in, than in the way modern understanding prejudices us concerning the vacuum. For the modern mind, the vacuum simply means empty space. It means nothingness. It means naught. And while there is a way in which such phrases can be considered true, we have discovered a deeper and more subtle dimension to the vacuum that we need to explore here. Discussions concerning the vacuum sometimes point to the regions between the superclusters as the best approximation to a pure vacuum, and this is a reasonable way to proceed. Certainly matter and energy are extremely rare in, the, in between clusters of galaxies. But the unfortunate consequence of speaking in these terms is to give the idea that the vacuum is far away, and this is simply not true. The vacuum is everywhere, and the place I want to refer to it in discussing it, the vacuum, is the space right in front of you. In order to bring the idea home, cup your hands together and reflect on what you are holding there. What are the contents cupped by your hand? First, in quantitative terms, would be the molecules of air, the molecules of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide and other trace gases. There would be many more than a billion trillion. If we imagine removing every one of those atoms, we would be left holding extremely small particles, such as neutrinos from the sun. In addition, there would be radiation energy in the form of invisible light, such as the photons from the original flaring forth of the universe, or from an Andromeda galaxy and other sources. In order to get down to nothingness, we would have to remove not only all the subatomic particles, we would also have to remove each and every one of these invisible particles of light. But now imagine that we have somehow done this, so that in your cupped hands there are no molecules left, and no particles and no photons of light. All matter and radiation have been removed. No things would be left, no objects, no stuff, no items that could be counted and measured. What would remain would be what we modern peoples refer to as the vacuum or emptiness as pure or pure space. Now for the news. Careful investigation of this vacuum by quantum physicists reveals 
the strange appearance of elementary particles in this emptiness. Even when there are no atoms and no elementary particles and no protons and no photons, suddenly elementary particles will emerge. The particles simply foam into existence. I understand how bizarre and far-fetched this might sound for anyone learning of it for the first time, but there is simply no way to make this discovery reasonable. Most of us have Newtonian minds with a built-in prejudice that thinks of the vacuum as dead. If we wish that only material is real and that the vacuum is dead and inert, we will have to find some way to keep ourselves ignorant of this deep discovery by the physicists. Particles emerge from the vacuum. They do not sneak in from some hiding place when we're not looking, nor are they bits of light energy that have transformed into protons. These elementary particles crop up out of the vacuum itself. That is the simple and awesome discovery. I am asking you to contemplate a universe where somehow being itself arises out of a field of fecund emptiness. The more carefully we study the universe, the stranger it gets. The emergence of particles out of a non-visible field is not some unusual event taking place off in the regions between the superclusters of galaxies. This radical emergence takes place throughout the entire universe. The reason it took us so many, many millennia to discover this process is its subtlety. It takes place at a realm far more subtle than that which our eyes can detect. The usual process is for particles to erupt in pairs that will quickly interact and annihilate each other. Electrons and positrons, protons and antiprotons, all of which, all of these are flaring forth and is quickly vanishing again. Such creative and destructive activity takes place everywhere and at all times throughout the universe. The ground of the universe then is an empty fullness, a fecund nothingness. Even though this discovery may be difficult, if not impossible, to visualize, we can nevertheless speak a deeper truth regarding the ground state of the universe. First of all, it is not inert. The base of the universe is not a dead, bottom-of-the-barrel thing. The base of the universe seethes with creativity so much so that physicists refer to the universe's ground state as space-time foam. A field of boundless emptiness. Just a little more here. This is... Um, a little bit, a little bit later, um, where um, Swim talks about his own preferred um, name for this uh, this boundless emptiness. He he says, "I use all nourishing abyss as a way of pointing to this mystery at the base of being." One advantage of this designation is its dual emphasis. The universe's generative potentiality is indicated with the phrase all-nourishing. 
but the universe's power of infinite absorption is indicated with abyss. And he says, the universe emerges out of all nourishing abyss not only 15 billion years ago, but in every moment. Each instant, protons and antiprotons are flashing out of and are suddenly absorbed back into all nourishing abyss. All nourishing abyss then is not a thing, nor a collection of things, nor even, strictly speaking, a physical place, but rather a power that gives birth and that absorbs existence at a thing's annihilation. The foundational reality of the universe is this unseen ocean of potentiality. And it's, it's an unseen and, and unseeable uh, ocean that we can touch, that we can experience. Each particular thing is directly and essentially grounded in, an all nourish in the all-nourishing abyss. Though we think of our bodies as dense and completely filling up the space they occupy, careful investigation of matter has shown that this is not the case. The volume of elementary particles is extremely small when compared to the volume of the atoms that they form. Thus, the essential nature of any atom is less material than it is empty space. Even from this elementary perspective, we can begin to appreciate that the root foundation of anything or any being is not the matter out of which it is composed so much as the matter together with the power that gives rise to the matter. All nourishing abyss is acting ceaselessly throughout the universe. It is not possible to find any place in the universe that is outside this activity. Even in the darkest region beyond the great wall of galaxies, even in the void between the superclusters, even in the gaps between the synapses of the neurons in the brain, there occurs an incessant foaming, a flashing flame, a shining forth from and a dissolving back into. And this, this, these discoveries in, in, in physics um, mirror uh, the experience we can have of our own mind. The more we look into it, the, we, the more we see that um, is mostly made up of, of open space of, um, and that there is this, this arising and, and um, falling quality to uh, the forms in our uh, that we experience in our in our mental sphere, and a huge part of our finding freedom is to experience um, ourselves in this way, to to begin to apprehend. The, the space that exists in and through and around uh, our experiences, our mental experiences and other experiences. The field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. 
you must purify, cure, grind down or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Now immediately with these, with these instructions we can um, appreciate that what Hongzhou is talking about is not some kind of passive quietism here. You must purify, cure, grind down or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. So it's a, it's a, a process, an active process, and, it, and it's one that, that requires uh, work. Grinding down implies something like working with rock. And these two, we can take these two images at the end of this, this list together to grind around, down or brush away. If you were a sculptor, that's how you would work. Grinding your stone, cutting away and then brushing away the, 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 uh, the dust that was created through that process and then going on further. So it's something exacting, um, requiring energy. The other words he uses are purify and cure to um, to really see into to have insight into our defilements is to purify them is to transform them from from uh, uh, obstacles into into wisdom understanding and cure we can take in, in two different ways. We can think of cure in the sense of, of healing, so um, making ourselves whole, or we can take it um, as you as meaning cure like like um, we might cure a, um, some kind of food where you you. Um, Subject it to a process of um, uh, season, um, call it aging, so that it, it becomes something um, that doesn't uh, decay in the same way. But these things, these things are. Um, take time to cure something in this way takes takes time takes the right conditions I'm trying I'm struggling to find a vegetarian example of this but the only thing, thing I could think of is is curing bacon applying the salt setting it aside or or um, cheeses as well um, like uh, Parmesan cheese, which is, is in Italian you say stagionato, seasoned. So there's a process that, that takes time and experience and, and care and understanding. And what we're, we're applying these different kinds of um, processes to is to the, our tendencies which we have fabricated into apparent habits. We, 
we we all are c- conditioned and we have certain tendencies certain biases in us and Hongzhi says we fabricate them into apparent habits what he means here is that um, we we identify with our habits we think that's who we are and we don't see that our habits are made up of uh, tendencies which um, since they've been fabricated they can be deconstructed habits can change they may not change overnight they may have to go through these different processes that he mentions here you must purify cure grind down or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness it's another way of talking about this field of boundless emptiness that that we can live from I was reminded reading this 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 image seeing this image of um the mathematician Nicholas of Cusa who said um, God is a circle whose circumference is nowhere and whose center is everywhere we're already standing at the center of this clear circle of brightness continues utter emptiness has no image upright independence does not rely on anything utter emptiness has no image we can we can point to it but we can't capture it in anything we say any words we use any terminology whether it's whether it's quantum vacuum or all nourishing abyss or or whatever these things they don't come near it has no image it has it, it isn't a visible thing upright independence does not rely on anything upright independence These, these are um, uprightness and independence are qualities of the true adult. To be upright, to live out of um, upright values. To 
to, to stand independently. Our sitting actually expresses this. Uh, we, we, are, we, we sit upright and we don't lean on anything. And that's exactly what we're, we're, we're trying to um, cultivate through our practice, is to be able to um, go through life um, without crutches. Just expand and illuminate the original truth unconcerned by external conditions. Unconcerned by external conditions. Maybe it's too hot where we are, or it's too cold or we, we feel like we're too sleepy or, or too scattered. But as long as we're, as long as we're um, relying on uh, external conditions, then uh, life will be a series of, of, of ups and downs. It'll be full of, of dukkha. This word dukkha or suffering uh, comes from a word that is related to and uh, a wheel whose, whose axle is not properly centered so that one's, one's ride is a bumpy ride. Accordingly, we are told to realize that not a single thing exists. What does this mean? We hear this a lot in, in Zen texts and Chan. Not a single thing exists. What it means is that nothing exists independently Everything exists in a, in, a, in a vast web of relationships. And so, so nothing is fixed. Everything is in flux. And we can rely on this flux when we're practicing. We may find ourselves in one or other uh, state of mind, but won't be there forever. It'll change. And and learning to to recognize this and to not take what arises too seriously is a huge part of, of practice.
It continues, in this field, birth and death do not appear. This relates very directly to this fact that not a th single thing exists. Nothing is really born or really dies because everything arises out of this the field of boundless emptiness, like like um, waves uh, rising and falling on an ocean. It's only an apparent birth and death in that little wave that comes and goes. But the ocean doesn't come and go. The ocean is always there. Well, uh, our time is up. We'll stop here now and recite the four vows.